Well, let's get to Mark 9 in our Bibles this morning. Mark chapter 9. And as you turn to Mark 9, let me ask you how you refer to yourself. Dad, mom, Republican, Democrat, engineer, American, Christian. Let's just limit it to religious labels. How do you refer to yourself religiously? Evangelical? Reformed? Protestant? Spiritual? Conservative? Born again? All of these can be good if understood properly. And depending on the context, any one of these labels could be a reasonable way to refer to ourselves. And yet, it should never escape us that the term the Bible uses most to describe those who have identified themselves with Jesus is disciples. 280 times in the New Testament that word is used of those who follow Jesus. That's what it means. Disciple is a follower, a student. They're those who do what he does, want to be like him, want to think like he thinks. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus teaches his disciples, his followers, what discipleship looks like, what, what being a disciple is and what it means and, and how it looks. Jesus teaches at least five things in the second half of Mark 9, the five things we'll look at today. And we're going to jump head first into the outline before we even read the whole passage. We don't usually do that, but I think it'll be helpful to set some of this up before we read the whole of it. We'll see in Mark 9 first, Jesus' disciples are on the way once again. They're on the way. That phrase may seem insignificant, but it's massively important. It's twice in our passage for today. Verse 33 and 34 both say it. The disciples had a discussion on the way. And then Jesus asked them what they were discussing when they were on the way. Again, it seems insignificant, inconsequential, like being out and about. Or as Canadians say, out in the boat. Uh, you're on the way. You're, you're going home. You're almost there. You're, you're, you're heading home. But scholars smarter than me have noticed that this is a literary device that Mark is using on the way. You'll remember, if you've been with us in our study of Mark, that at the middle of chapter 8, there's a shift in Mark. The middle of chapter 8 has something like a continental divide for the book. And that's where we see the first explicit mention of being on the way. Look back at chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. That is, back south, toward Jerusalem. That will become significant in the rest of Mark. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And then there's clarity. And then Jesus talks about his mission of going to die. Look at chapter 9, verse 33 and 34, as I mentioned. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road, it says, 
But in the Greek text, it's the same phrase that we've been seeing in chapter 8, 27, and chapter 9, verse 33. They were on the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So often in these travel descriptions, it's clear Jesus is the one leading the way. He's going ahead. He is the one going to Jerusalem to die. Look at verse 52 of chapter 10. Jesus says here to blind Bartimaeus who's healed, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And he received his sight, it says, and followed him on the way. Or even chapter 11 There, as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, a crowd comes out to meet him. And in chapter 11, verse 8, many spread their cloaks on the road or on the way once again. Those aren't coincidental similarities. In these transitional chapters, Mark is reminding his careful readers that Jesus is on the way to the cross. Everything's about the cross. He's going to Jerusalem where he'll be betrayed and killed And on the third day, rise. By the way, in Luke's gospel account, it's chapter 9, verse 51. That's the hinge of the book. It's the continental divide for Luke. And Luke uses slightly different language, but communicates the same thing as Mark is. In Luke 9, 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, resurrected and ascended, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the rest of Luke is about going to Jerusalem. It rolls downhill quite quickly after that. But back to Mark's gospel account. Think of the context of where we are today here in chapter 9. Remember that in Mark 8, Jesus was on the way and then foretold of his death and resurrection. Then Peter didn't get it. And so Jesus taught about following him. It means taking up your cross, denying self. In Mark 9, they're on the way once again, and Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection. Once again, they don't get it, and so Jesus takes the opportunity for a lengthy instruction. In Mark 10, look over there. We'll see this in upcoming weeks. We'll see the same thing all over again. See in verse 32? They were on the road or on the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them again what was to happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. Well, if you're noticing a pattern, you can guess what happens next in chapter 10. They don't get it. James and John, two brothers, say, Hey, Jesus, we were just thinking... How about after all this shakes out, you make me vice president and my brother secretary of state in this kingdom? How about we're number two and number three? We called it. And then, of course, Jesus teaches them once again. You see the pattern? Three predictions from Jesus, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, followed by three poor responses from the disciples, followed by three teaching moments from Jesus. To clarify what he's doing, where he's going, and what it means to follow him. 
And in short, his teaching to the disciples in each case is otherworldly. It's otherworldly. It's an upside-down sort of worldview than the one most of us are used to, most, the one that most of us are born with and observe in our lives. So almost 2,000 years later, let us not forget that we follow a king, a God who was once on the way. He turned his face resolutely toward Jerusalem and went to the cross in our place. And if we will take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow him, then in some ways we are on the way. We are on the way. Not to a literal cross, but we are on the proverbial Calvary road. We saw last week in chapter 9 that when Jesus foretold of his death and resurrection here for the second time of those three, it says they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. That's a bad response. But what we'll see this week is that it's actually much worse of a response than silence and fear. They do talk. They do talk on the way. So let's read our passage for today. Verses 30 to 50. Another prediction, another poor response, and another teaching moment. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. That's where we left off last week. And now verse 33, And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So now we come to our second point. 
Jesus' teaching. We learn that Jesus' disciples are not great. They are not great. On the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And apparently Jesus knows this, either because he's all-knowing or because they were ten feet behind him and they whispered too loudly. But he heard, he knew somehow, and, and he asked. And once again, they were silent. And so Jesus teaches them that they're not great. And really, he teaches what true greatness is. It seems unthinkable, ludicrous, that they would come from where they have just come and they would do what they just then do. That they would come from the Mount of Transfiguration. That they would have this moment of uh, being unable to cast out a demon. But then Jesus reproves them and points them to prayer. That they would come from that. That they would come from a, a prediction of his death and resurrection. Again. And begin to debate their rank. It's laughable. Which is one indication that this is a true account. It's not made up. If you were these guys, you wouldn't make up such a stupid looking picture of yourselves. It is comical and ironic, but it might help us to know some cultural differences between ours and theirs. Theirs being more of an honor-shame culture than ours is. Whether you're talking about first century Roman, Greco-Roman world and culture, or whether you're talking about first century Jewish culture, it matters not. They both had a heavy concern for the pecking order of things. The Judaism in Jesus' time had no small concern for greatness and what greatness, how, how greatness was defined and how greatness would be achieved. I mean, even the rabbis debated this sort of thing. Who was great in the kingdom? What the rank in the kingdom was and based on what? Even in our own culture, we can think of examples where the pecking order is clearly established and frequently acknowledged. In the academic world, you don't just have professors, but you have, you have instructors and then adjunct professors and then assistant professors, associate professors, then full professors, and then some of them are tenured professors, and then, and then some get really good at research and writing, and they're called research professors. And then some get really, really good, and they get a chair of the department. And it's named after some guy who was a benefactor for the school. And everyone in that department knows exactly where everyone is. You know when you're an associate. You know when you've made it to full professor. In government work, you know when you're a G7. Is it a GS7? You might be a GS7, and that guy's a GS9, and you know what he makes, and darn it, you wish it was you. How did I get there? The military, of course, literally wears their rank on their sleeve. Right? They do. You know exactly where everyone is. You know who to salute and who to ignore. <laughs> I remember the middle school lunchroom when I was a kid, and there were the cool tables, or really there was the one cool table, the real cool table, and then I, I, I usually sat at like the second cool table or third cool table. I don't think I ever broached the first cool table, you know, number one. Uh, but, but everyone sort of knew where everyone was in the pecking order of things. 
So we can understand something, what's going on with the disciples. But again, their culture was even more obsessed with this stuff than ours. And they were not only, assu- uh, they were not only assuming the need to establish a pecking order, but like everyone around them, they assumed that it was good and right to, in life, move up, to break on through, to get to another level of things. And you can imagine how their debate might have gone, especially with Peter, James, and John having just been alone with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing his glory, hearing the voice of the Father. Perhaps they would say, he actually spoke to us, to us. Surely we're like the top three in the batting order. I mean, you guys can debate number four, but uh, we're going to work on one through three right here, just us. You can hear Peter maybe thinking, Or saying, well, I was the one who first said that Jesus was the Messiah. You guys might have been thinking it, but I had the guts to say it. And then they would go, yeah, but Peter, right after you yelled at him, and then he called you Satan. So, uh, back of the line, you know? John Calvin called this the foolish itch for primacy. A foolish itch for primacy. Jesus sits down and teaches them. Verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. He must be last. Last is bad, even in our culture. Last, last picked for the game. Last in the class at school. Last. Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last. Turn it upside down. Jesus' disciples must not see themselves as great. They must not pursue greatness as the world does. They must begin to think and operate in upside down ways, or they will never get the cross. Remember, that's the whole point of all this. They didn't get the cross, and so they dispute about greatness. They rank themselves. But Jesus is making clear, this is the way of the cross. You want to be big, you have to get small. You want to be great, get on your knees, get low. Jesus' kingdom is not determined by clout. Jesus' kingdom is not, it's not ordered by power or impressiveness Greatness in his kingdom is not achieved by self-promotion or jockeying for power or with put-downs. He must be a servant of all. In Mark 10, Jesus comes back to this idea of being a servant, both for them and for him. Again, I said the cross is really the whole key in all this. Look over at chapter 10. Remind yourself of this in verse 43. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, as a payment for sin. He came to sacrifice his own life for ours. He came to die that we might live. It's a message to be believed. You must believe that. You must believe that Jesus is your servant. 
He glorifies himself to be your servant. Isn't that amazing? I pray you believe it and know it to be true. And yet you should also know that it's not just a message to be believed and something to be embraced, but it's a model to be followed and imitated. And that's why Paul can talk about the cross not just as a message to be believed for the forgiveness of sins, as a ransom for sins, but also as a model to follow, a supreme model. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is Philippians 2. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Though he was truly God, though he was with the Father eternally in glory, yet he became a man. He became a servant. He humbled himself. To what extent did he humble himself and serve? He humbled himself all the way to the cross. He served others with the full extent of his life. Again, I pray you believe that and know that to be true, historically true and true for you. Jesus was confronting the kind of thinking that is problematic for embracing a crucified king. We have an otherworldly kind of savior and we have an otherworldly kind of salvation. If you want to know what the kingdom of Christ is like, look at the cross. Or look at a child. Verse 36 and 37, he took a child. It's an illustration here. He put him, the child, in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Here's another place where we need to talk about cultural differences because we could very easily miss the mark. We read of Jesus taking a child holding a child on his lap, honoring a child, and we love it. We celebrate it. We just picture it. We wish Ann Getty were there to take a cool baby picture. Or Norman Rockwell is there to, to paint a picture of this, a portrait. In our culture today, we love children. We celebrate children. We oftentimes idolize children. But it was far from the case in their culture. Worse so in the secular Roman world, but even among the Jewish culture of Jesus' time. You see, children were at the bottom rung on the honor scale. Of course, the Old Testament talked about training them, but that just proved the point all the more. They need training. Children had no power, no clout, no income, no status. They need, they take. Children were of no use to anyone who was wanting to move up on the honor scale. Again, that's not true for our culture. Many of us are quite happy to be defined by our kids. We're quite happy to have our kids as our identity. That's why empty nesting is so hard for so many. But in their culture, it was a shocking thing what Jesus was saying. It was an otherworldly approach to think about people in things, in receiving. Jesus' disciples must welcome or receive the least, the lowliest, the, the forgotten. The book of James talks a lot about this. 
paints the picture of a, basically a church service and, and a rich family comes in, they have nice clothes and you say, ah, sit here in the front row. Apparently in their culture, people sat in the front row. <laughs> Not here. We would say, I got a great seat for you. It's in the back. You get to be first out. Don't forget, there are seats up here, people. Uh, but back to James. James says, uh, a rich family comes in looking all nice, and you say, ah, oh, seat of honor. Poor man comes in looking rough, maybe smelling badly, and yeah, I got a spot for you. It's out there in the hall. You can watch a TV. The church must be different than that. David Garland, a commentator on Mark, he, he writes this. When Jesus' followers serve those without any status, they receive Jesus in the one who sent him. The greatest thing they can do is serve those who are forgotten and regarded as insignificant. Those who have no influence, no title, no priority or importance except to God. Mark pictures a community, a church, where no one is treated either as a kingpin or as a nobody. Now, many of us movers and shakers, many of you titans of industry who are also Christians, you know not to make the James 2 mistake. You know not to, you know, really bask in the glory of rich people who visit our church and be rude to poor people who visit our church. But, but think of your mindset when you go to a party. Maybe, you know, it's a party of who's who's in the city. And you know it's a good opportunity to make connections, to network. It's, it's a great opportunity for advancement possibly someday. Maybe you'll get that business card that, that really gives you another job, another place, more money. You get to know so-and-so, then you get to know so-and-so. Pastors do this at conferences all the time. They go to conferences and you meet people and you want to meet that guy, not this guy. That guy's written books, and that guy will introduce you to those people who've also written books. And Of course, connections aren't wrong. Networking isn't all bad. But something's upside down when, when rarely we think of going to a place and looking for the lowliest, looking for those in need, not thinking about self. Self-advancement, I don't know, maybe... You know, wouldn't it be nice if that just didn't pop up? Didn't pop up in our thinking? Teenager, if you're not in the youth group and you're a teen or younger than a teen, maybe, a tween, just think about how much time you spend on rank. How much time you spend thinking about who is where. What place they hold. Are they better at this thing than you? Where are you in the scale? Whatever scale you want to use, cool, grades, success, friends. Do you know that Jesus wants to free you from all that? Do you know that Jesus can free you from all that? Jesus can free you. He can forgive you, first of all, for all the self-centeredness that we all have. And he can free you from it. Cross and resurrection point us to an upside-down world where we can actually go to school thinking about those who are in need the most and not advancing ourselves. 
This passage also shows that these disciples must be received. I think the child actually represents them. I didn't start out thinking that when I studied this passage last week, but I think they are really the point of the illustration of the child. Verse 37 says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In the coming years, they are going to represent Jesus in this world, and they are going to be rejected or received wherever they go. And Jesus says, Children, forgotten ones, little ones, needy ones, outcasts. You'll be blessed when people receive you. They will not just receive you, but receive me, and not just me, but him who sent me. I think this take on Mark 9 will become clearer as we work our way further into the passage, but just tuck it away for now. Jesus' disciples are children who need to be received and welcomed, especially on their mission. They're lowly, and whoever receives them receives Jesus and him who sent him. Thirdly, and more quickly through the rest, Jesus' disciples are not partisan. They're not to be partisan. If the children or child was an illustration or an example of how and how not to think about greatness, then verses 38 to 41 give us another sort of illustration, not initiated by Jesus, but John. It's another example or really even a test case for how and how not to think about ourselves and others. And the point is this, Jesus' disciples are not to be jealous, territorial, protective, competitive, or cliquish, but they are to celebrate wherever God's work is found, even when it's found in surprising and unlikely places and people. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He's a someone. They don't know him. Never seen this guy before, Jesus. And he's doing what we do. Well, never mind the fact that they most recently couldn't do what this man is doing, right? They couldn't cast out the demon in the previous story. And here they say, Jesus, we found this guy. We, we don't know him. He's not with us. And notice the us. That doesn't seem like a collective us which includes Jesus. He doesn't follow us. He didn't get the instructions from us. He didn't come to us for approval. He didn't come to us with training or for training. He didn't come to us. He doesn't follow us. Never mind that he does it in Jesus' name. And never mind that he can and does cast out the demons. They apparently see this man as being on a different team, as being competition, a rival. They apparently see themselves as gatekeepers of the truth, of ministry, of this Jesus thing. They're the ones holding the reins. And they're going to keep it tight if they can. Never mind the fact that this whole thing of Jesus, that thing, this movement is about to blow up. It's about to go global. You can't limit it to 12 or 11. You're going to need workers. You're going to need prophets and preachers, miracle workers. This should remind us of Numbers 11 in the Old Testament, where there are 70 elders uh, 
70 elders began to prophesy to the people. But then two other guys, Eldab and Medad, I think are their names, they start to prophesy as well, but they're not part of the 70. And Joshua gets concerned and says to Moses, Moses, make them stop. And Moses says, are you kidding? I wish all of God's people were prophets. I wish all the people were prophesying and hearing from God. We might think of Philippians 1. There, Paul tells that some were preaching Christ out of envy and strife to add more affliction to his imprisonment. They're preaching Christ for very bad motives. And yet, Paul says, who cares? Christ is preached, and in that I rejoice. Jesus tells John in verse 39, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. The soon afterward that Jesus is talking about is soon afterward when persecution comes upon Jesus' followers. Pretty soon it's going to be really clear who's in and who's out. Pretty soon it'll be really clear that there's no trifling about with Jesus. Either you got him and you'll die for him or, or you don't. For the one who is not against us is for us, Jesus says. Again, these are persecuting times where the one who is not against us is for us. If you think about it, that's hard for us to apply. It's hard to apply and understand verse 30. Or maybe we should say it's easy to over-apply. Partly because in Matthew 12... Verse 30, Jesus says the exact opposite. There he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Well, are they both true? Yeah, we know that. They're both true because Jesus said them. It's like that proverb. I think it's Proverbs 26. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. It's stupid. Don't bother. Next proverb, answer a fool according to his folly. Which one? Well, there's a time for each. There's a time to answer and a time to not. And there's a time to say, the one who is not against us is for us. And another time to say, whoever is not with him is against him. In Matthew 12, Jesus was teaching discernment. Black and white lines, very clear. In Mark 9, Jesus was teaching the disciples to not be too suspicious Yes, plenty of people in our day work all kinds of shenanigans in Jesus' name falsely. Plenty of people today aren't against Jesus. They're not exactly for him either, but they're not against him. They're like Switzerland. They're neutral. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying. Mark 9 has something very important for us, though, about the danger of overly, uh, being overly suspicious, and then hence being jealous and territorial, protective and competitive and cliquish. I hope you're already thinking of ways in which this applies to us today. Denominations might be one for people, people who have a denominational heritage or tradition. I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian. The others, well, you look over the, the shrubs and you, you sort of roll your eyes and look down your nose at all those others that don't get it right. 
Or maybe you're a former denominationalist. You're very proud to be a non-denominationalist and you look down at all those others who are so stuck in their traditions. Theological camps within the body of Christ make it easy for us to think we have it, they don't, and they don't have it at all. If they're not with us, they're against us. They're not of us. Or other churches in town. Do we look down our noses at other churches or every church or some churches? We can't assume that someone is all bad even if there's some bad. And even if we don't tell them that there's some bad. We can't assume that everything would be right. We can't assume that something will be right because it's from that guy or that guy. We can't assume something's wrong because it's not from those guys or from that camp. We can't have a tribal approach to Christianity, an us versus them mentality. We can't hoard the truth and we can't hoard the ministry. We know that. Of course, we shouldn't ignore our theological and maybe even traditional differences. We shouldn't flatten out distinctives between churches or denominations. We shouldn't get rid of anything that divides so that, well, we don't have anything much to agree on, but whatever we have, we'll agree on it. That's not what Jesus is encouraging. But we should celebrate God's work when it's truly God's work even when it comes from unlikely sources or unknown people. I've read this too many times to know who to attribute it to, but many people have blogged or tweeted this line. If you pray for revival in your city, are you okay with it starting at another church, not yours? If you're okay, I mean, if you're, if you're praying for revival in your city, are you okay if your church is on the decline and all others are growing and being blessed? I think we often pray for God to work in this or that way. And by that, we usually mean, Lord, we pray that you would work through us. And we emphasize that us. Lord, we want you to grow us so that the church is, of course, built up and strengthened and grows and people get saved. But we want you to work through us. Jesus goes on to say in verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Do you see how this should teach the disciples that they are like children who need receiving? Notice it went from a he, the child, they, people in general, to now you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. You children, you're going to be traveling about and thirsty at times, and when someone does something as small as give you a cup of water because you belong to Christ, they are rewarded and you are blessed. Of course, they didn't get that because they didn't do that with this unknown miracle worker. They should have welcomed him. They should have celebrated God's work in and through him. They should have remembered that eventually they'll be on the other end of the receiving and giving. Instead, they tried to shut him up. Fourthly, Jesus' disciples are dead serious. They are dead serious. Yes, they should be joyful. In many ways, they should be light and worry-free. 
But from another angle, they should be dead serious because some things are dead serious. Verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that is to stumble, to not believe, to keep them from it, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. A great millstone here refers to a certain kind of millstone, not one that's turned by hand as you, as you milled the grain, one so big it was turned by a donkey. It's a donkey millstone. Jesus says that causing others to sin is that serious. Causing others to not believe or keeping them from it is that serious. So they must be dead serious about how they think of others, about how they welcome the lowliest, how they serve the littlest. But they also must be dead serious about their own sin. Verse 43 If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. This is hyperbole, we know. I hope no one in here takes this literally and goes home and practices self-surgery. Although there were seasons in the church, the early church, where this actually was taken literally. Origen castrated himself. Didn't do any good because you still got a lustful mind. Jesus doesn't mean this literally, but remember, hyperbole is exaggeration to make a point. Don't lose the point. And don't lose the pointiness of it. Don't lose the sharp edge by just acknowledging the fact that this is hyperbole. Jesus means to put this in shocking, in stark terms. If your eye, this thing that you need, the thing that's good, if it causes you to sin, gouge it out. If this hand, this thing you use lots of times in a day, or this foot in an age before prosthetics, if this foot is causing you to sin, forget all the good that it does and get rid of it. What do you need to cut out? What do you need to cut off? What keeps causing you to sin? Maybe for some here, you would have to say, Facebook might be something like that for me. I I don't want to cut it off. I don't want to cut it out. But I continually covet and envy through this temptation on Facebook. Maybe some would say, I know not to take the promotion when it's offered me. I've done manager stuff before, and I, I, uh, I sin. I get angry. I'm rude. It's not good for me. I'm going to cut it out. I'm going to cut it off. What keeps leading you to sin? You need to cut off the internet connection. You say, in this age, not have internet or, or a smartphone? I know it's useful. So are feet and eyes and hands. You might need to cut it off. Because sin is sneaky. Hell is real. Hell is terrible. And there are plenty of people who've dabbled in sin and dabbled in sin, gone deeper and deeper in sin, and then they stop believing 
proving that they never really believed it in the first place. Sin can lead to unbelief. Unbelief will lead to hell. It's eternal. Notice in verse 43, it's an unquenchable fire. That's not your normal fire. Usually fires burn things up. They consume things and then they die down. Fire can't burn without consuming something. But this is an unquenchable fire. It keeps going. Verse 48, Jesus says it's where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Their worm does not die. The idea is a a parasitic worm eating someone from the inside out. But it never gets full and it never dies. Eternal torment. You say, is hell really going to have fire? And are there really going to be worms inside of people? Probably not. Way worse. That's why it's described in such horrific terms. Not because it's literally going to have these things in it, but because it's horrible, it's horrific, it's unimaginable. What, what, what category can you use besides imagery, metaphors? Hell is real. Hell is terrible. Sin is sneaky. It's forever. Be dead serious about sin. And lastly, Jesus' disciples are salty. On a happier note, Jesus' disciples are salty. Verse 49 to 50, these things are all about salt. Starting with verse 49, which I confess I don't have any real good idea what this means. For everyone will be salted with fire. Talk about mixing metaphors. I don't know exactly what Jesus meant here, and that's not because I didn't do my homework. So I'm really not going to talk about that verse. Just because I'm not sure what it means. It's probably related to purification of some sort. It may have something to do with sacrifice. But regardless of whatever it means, there's something like a slinky going on from verse 42 all the way to the end of the chapter where one word gets mentioned in one verse and then it's picked up in the next verse on a, a different step and talked about in a different way. So... Obviously, hell, fire, and then verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. And then salt is the thing picked up in verse 50, which I think I know a little bit more about, so let's talk about that. Verse 50 says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Salt is good for taste. Salt is good for preservation, especially in an age before refrigeration. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, if salt doesn't taste like salt, then what good is salt? We don't think it'd be nice to sprinkle some white crystals on top of our food. We think it's supposed to taste like salt. And if it's lost its saltiness, how do you put it back in again? Salt is good. Well, what is the salt? What's he talking about? Have salt in yourselves or among yourselves and be at peace with one another. There's the salt That's what tastes good. That's what preserves the world around you. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said elsewhere. You're the light of the world. Guys, don't debate. Don't argue. Don't jockey for position. Don't play games with each other. Welcome each other. Serve each other. Celebrate God's work in each other. Be at peace with one another. 
Romans 12 says, outdo each other in showing honor. Show honor to each other, outdoing one another. Don't argue. No. Instead, see others as Jesus sees them. Have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Because you've been looked out for. Because you know what it means to be served by the king and to be served at such a great expense. If you don't see what Jesus is talking about in Mark 9, you probably will see no reason for this Savior to be a crucified one or for God to sacrifice himself and to be treated lowly. I pray that we would see the cross afresh and stand in awe. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work upon the cross on our behalf. We want that to spread. We want others to know of it. Whether they hear it here or someplace else, we pray they would hear it. They pray, we pray they would be saved. We pray they would know you as their Savior and Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would revel in your kind servantry for us, that we would revel in glory in the cross, that we would stand in awe of what you've done for us with great thanks and praise, that we would sing of your glory because you're not just a crucified Savior but a risen one, not just a humble king but an exalted one, And one day you will return and every eye will see you. Every knee will bow before you and confess that you are Lord to the glory of your Father. You are indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you that we know you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have caused us to love you. Help us for more, we pray. Amen.